quote, From the beginning of our history, the country has been afflicted with compromise. It is by compromise that human rights have been abandoned. End quote. This is a quote from Charles Sumner about yet another compromise around slavery. From the Constitutional Convention's Three-Fifths Compromise, to the Missouri Compromise, to the Compromises of 1850, the human rights of the enslaved continued to be neglected. This is Henry Wilson and the Civil War. Outside of the paper business, the political dealings of the Free Soilers after the 1848 election were busy. Wilson recognized that the only way a party their size could reach success would be through a strong inter-party coalition. Such a coalition would not be possible with the Whigs, of course, so Wilson needed to turn to the anti-slavery Democrats. At the Free Soil Convention in 1849, Wilson managed to corral Free Soilers, many of whom were former Whigs and deeply critical of Democratic policies, into supporting a platform which endorsed many Democratic positions. In turn, the Democratic Convention the same year called on Wilson to approve some of the resolutions before they made it to the floor. As the Free Soil Democratic Coalition strengthened, an upheaval of abolitionist politics would occur from a deal in Congress that would reshape the future of the nation. It was 1850, and the question of slavery's expansion had reached a peak. The North and South were impassioned, and factions on both sides threatened disunion. Tensions could be felt across the nation, and especially in the halls of Congress. At the beginning of the 31st Congress, it took a record 63 ballots to elect a new speaker, and the question of slavery had grown from a chatter to a scream. In an effort to dissuade states away from disunion, Senator and old statesman Henry Clay worked to broker a compromise. His bills gained little traction on their own, but following a reorganization by Senator Stephen Douglas of Illinois, the compromise effort got off its feet. Douglas and Clay organized a deal that would settle the disputes pressing upon Congress. One, in an act to appease the North, California, that was acquired from the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, ending the Mexican War, would be a free state. Two, in an effort to appease the South, the New Mexico Territory and the Utah Territory would have their slave status determined by popular sovereignty, the idea that the people of those territories get to vote on whether or not to prohibit slavery. Three, in another point for the North, the slave trade would be banned in Washington, D.C., Northerners felt it embarrassing to have diplomats visit the capital and be shown men being auctioned off in the streets. To be clear, this didn't abolish slavery in D.C., only the physical selling of enslaved men and women in the public. The fourth provision of the Compromise is one which garnered the most outrage from the North, and that was the Fugitive Slave Law, and also its required enforcement in northern states. The Fugitive Slave Law essentially required Northerners to turn over runaway slaves back to the South. In the years leading up to 1850, 
The fugitive slave laws had been dwindling in the North, and Southerners were growing discontent with its lack of enforcement. The fugitive slave provision of the Compromise was to remedy that. These four acts, divided into five bills, were known as the Compromise of 1850. The Compromise was a conservative approach to keeping the Union together. Abolitionists regarded the acts as an abhorrent failure, forcing the North to play directly into the hands of the South. On March 7, 1850, Massachusetts Senator and the man Wilson looked up to, Daniel Webster, rose from his desk in the Senate chamber and began to speak. I wish today to speak not as a Massachusetts man, nor as a Northern man, but as an American. In his speech, Webster went on to endorse the Compromise of 1850 and attempt to rally the Union together. The 7th of March speech today is regarded as one of the greatest orations in Senate history. In Massachusetts, Henry Wilson and the growing anti-slavery population were appalled. On Boston Common the next day, Wilson essentially declared war on Webster. He vowed to destroy Webster's career and build a coalition to oust him from the Senate. Wilson's colleagues stood behind him in sentiment, but felt that a task so extreme was too daunting to achieve. Wilson knew how difficult it would be to build a coalition with the Democrats. One wrong move could finish him and any anti-slavery faction's chances at success. But fighting against the forces supporting the Compromise was a risk he was willing to take. As Wilson got to work organizing meetings with Democrats to hammer out an agreement for a coalition, Charles Francis Adams began to forcibly fight his efforts. Adams and the other Free Soilers feared that Democrats, who nationally were beginning to align more with Southern interests, would jeopardize national anti-slavery goals. If a Democrat were to be elected as a senator, they would vote for Northern interests or be caught up in party fervor and vote with the South. The Free Soilers split, with Wilson leading the pro-coalition faction and Adams the opposite. In one meeting, Wilson snapped at Adams and Samuel Palfrey, threatening to kick them both out of the party. Charles Sumner took no clear side, though he at first seemed hesitant to support the coalition. Stephen Phillips, a close ally of Adams, wanted to be nominated as the governor for the Free Soilers, and a Democratic coalition threatened his opportunity, furthering Adams' drive against a deal with Democrats. Wilson mobilized his friends and allies and recruited newspapers and other popular politicians to push for coalition. Wilson's political wit and his impressive maneuvering proved to be successful, with Democrats and Free Soilers striking up an agreement to coalesce. But there's a great story that in uh, 1850, the three of them are all serving in the Massachusetts legislature. And one day they leave the state house on Beacon Hill, they walk down to Boston Common and take a stroll around the, the common. And I think it's pretty much Henry Wilson who has the, the primary idea of a coalition between the Free Soil Party, which has just been organized, and the Democrats, and especially those Democrats like George Boutwell, who are anti-slavery. This is Jeffrey Boutwell, a historian and biographer of George Boutwell. You'll hear his voice in this episode and throughout the next coming episodes, as he'll help guide us through this period of Henry Wilson's life and the Democratic Free Soil Coalition. Uh, Bowell had become increasingly frustrated with the National Democratic Party, uh, which is looking to push slavery into the Western territories, which is de definitely controlled by the Southern White Democrat part of the party. And so Bowell is, you know, 
frustrated with the National Party um, stance on slavery, but he still is enough of a, you know, a, a small D Democrat in, in favor of the working man and laborers that he's not yet ready to, to leave the party. So Wilson proposes a coalition that the Free Soilers and the Democrats can combine against the Whig Party and overturn you know, Whig dominance in Massachusetts politics. Well, uh, the electoral system of Massachusetts is such that you know, the party that uh, wins the governorship or, or Senate uh, positions has to have a plurality uh, or has to have a majority of the vote, not just a plurality. So as happened in the 1850 election, Democrats and the Free Soilers, they pool their votes. And even though the Whigs win most of the votes, even if the Whigs win 48% of the vote and say the Free Soilers and Democrats only win 26% each, if they combine those, they get 52% of the vote and they're gonna get their man elected, which is what happened. Democrats would get to nominate the governor while the Free Soilers would get the next open Senate seat. Adams was enraged as his social inferior succeeded. Thanks to Wilson's leadership, the coalition had a strong performance in the election, winning majorities in both houses of the Massachusetts legislature. The Democrats nominated George Boutwell as governor. George Boutwell was a friend of Wilson who was central on the Democratic side and pushing for a coalition with the Free Soilers. The Free Soilers had been loyal in their part of the agreements, and all they could do now was wait to see if the Democrats would be equally as trustworthy. With the Democrats obtaining the highest position in the state, their attitude towards coalition shifted. Wilson began to become uneasy with the prospect of Democrats being true to their word. He worried that by the time the Senate seat opened, the coalition would be weakened and Democrats wouldn't hold their end of the deal. On a cold, frost-covered afternoon in November, Wilson ran into Charles Adams in the street and expressed his concerns about the coalition's failings. Adams basically said, I told you so, and walked away with pride having stood against the bargain from the beginning. On New Year's Eve, the two factions met. The Democrats and Free Soilers both chose five men to sit on a committee to affirm their coalition and settle the leadership arrangements of the Statehouse. Both parties agreed that the Democrats would get to elect the Speaker and Clerk of the House, and the Free Soilers would get to elect the President and Clerk of the Senate. The next day, Wilson and other Free Soilers worked to hammer out the other positions and ensure that both sides would be loyal to their agreements. The affirmation and successful political guarantees for the Free Soilers pleased Wilson and settled his nerves. The Democrat Boutwell was officially elected to the governorship, Democrat Nathaniel Banks was elected as the Speaker, and Free Soiler Henry Wilson was elected as the President of the Senate. These three men, though from different parties, ushered in a new age for the Massachusetts State House, which was just years earlier dominated by Whigs and aristocrats, and was now dominated by working men who rose from poverty to political success. Uh, Wilson, I think, becomes president of the Massachusetts House and Banks becomes, or Senate, and Banks becomes Speaker of the House. Uh, but essentially it was that uh, triumvirate of Wilson, Boutwell, and Banks that put together the coalition. Reading some of this material from around this time and the analysis from Wilson biographer Ernest McKay, it seems like Banks and Boutwell viewed Wilson with some suspicion that their political ambitions kind of overrode their friendship. Um, I've, uh, I've read the McKay material. It's, it's great stuff. I actually would modify that a little bit to say that all three of them were kind of playing their cards close to the vest and 
yes, there was a connection between banks and Boutwell for a time, but that didn't last. Um, by the 1860s, Nathaniel Banks is, I mean, they're still communicating, they're still in touch, of course, because they're Massachusetts and they're supporting the Union war effort. But I don't consider Nathaniel Banks to be one of George Boutwell's, you know, really close friends. Uh, so in that respect, I think each one of the three kind of came together in a marriage of convenience uh, in the coalition. And then of course, working together to found the Republican party. And then when Wilson goes to the Senate, uh, Banks goes to the House of Representatives, Boutwell is commissioner of internal revenue, but then he goes to the House of Representatives. You know, they certainly had a lot of commonality of interests, uh, but I never really got the sense that all three of them were, uh, were bosom buddies. Though Wilson had achieved this high position in the State House, his work was not yet done. Sumner still needed to be elected to the U.S. Senate, and Democrats began to withdraw their agreements. Democratic newspapers argued that the Free Soil Democrat Coalition was for state politics and not national positions. Democrats who had been supportive of the coalition, and even some who formed and agreed to the conditions, began to oppose it, holding a private meeting in an effort to defeat Sumner. On January 6, 1851, tensions ran high in the State House as the vote to elect the next U.S. Senator was debated. Sumner now faced opposition from Whig Robert Winthrop, who had gained some support from Democrats. Needing 191 votes to be elected, on the first ballot, Sumner received 186, Winthrop 167, and 28 votes were scattered. Wilson worked the floor, trying to use his political talent to reignite the coalition and get Sumner elected. After another failing vote on the 6th, the election was pushed until the next day, which showed similar results. As the weeks went on, Sumner received calls from both Free Soilers and Democrats to give up, but Wilson pushed to quell the fears and improve Sumner's chances. Wilson, being the main negotiator, faced criticism from all sides with charges of corruption and failure. The coalition had fallen apart, and Wilson faced public humiliation for his disastrous plan, which gave so much power to the Democrats. Caleb Cushing, a charming Democrat, stepped forward to lead the Democrats' bid. Here's a passage from Ernest McKay's biography of Wilson, which reads, quote, Cushing, a charming, learned man, in contrast to the crude Wilson, contended that the election of Sumner would bring disunion. For added measure, he had a distinct dislike for shoemakers in politics. As he looked around the State House, he saw not only the Nada Cobbler, the President of the Senate, but also Amasa Walker, the Secretary of the Commonwealth, John E. Alley, a Senator and member of the Council. All were shoemakers or held interest in shoe trade. There were others too, and the shoe towns generally supported the Free Soil Party." End quote. At the time, shoemakers tended to be political radicals, a sharp contrast to the conservative viewpoint of Democrat Cushing. Cushing called for any other free soiler to be elected, as long as it was not the radical Sumner. Cushing even preferred the shoemaker Wilson, but Wilson continued to push. As the months went on, Sumner's chances of being elected were dashed, and newspapers called his election impossible. Wilson, fond of improbable prospects, worked even harder. Wilson maneuvered and lobbied the representatives in every way. He followed them to their homes, pleaded with them during dinner, and pushed as hard as he could for his friend to be elected. On January 23rd, the House voted with 194 ballots going to Sumner, a margin big enough to win. Though the 194 votes was enough to give Sumner the victory, one of the ballots was unclear in its intention, 
with Wilson's name being marked off with a pencil. The election committee also found that two votes more had been cast than members present. The state was electrified, waiting for results. After three more votes, all coming back indecisive, the House adjourned, planning to hold another vote the next day. On the first vote the next day, once again, two more votes were cast than members present. Anger erupted as members charged that some representatives were trying to delay the vote in support of another candidate. In the next round, voting envelopes were used to ensure correct counting. 193 votes were needed to win, and when the votes were tallied and the numbers were verified, Sumner had gained exactly 193, securing him his seat in the United States Senate. No one knew who the one member was who changed his vote, but Wilson suspected it was Israel Hayes, a member he had pushed passionately in the days leading to the election. Sumner received the news in the home of Charles Francis Adams, the opponent of the coalition that got him elected. This again highlights the aristocratic nature of the men. Rather than being with the poor Wilson who had fought so hard for his election, Sumner chose the socially higher ground. When Wilson received the word of the victory, he was overjoyed and joined in a thousand people celebration around the state house. Wilson spoke, saying, quote, Victory this day consummated dates from the 7th of March, 1850, when that great man stood up in the Senate and repudiated the long-cherished sentiments of Massachusetts, end quote. Wilson's speech was a reminder that all of this tension and ruckus was caused by the Compromise of 1850. Wilson received a note from Sumner the next day, thanking him and saying, quote, For weal or woe, you must take responsibility for having placed me in the Senate of the United States, end quote. The United States Senate now had a passionate anti-slavery leader in its midst, all of the work and struggle in the state. All of the work and struggle had culminated in what Free Soilers hoped would be a win for freedom. Henry Wilson, now the president of the Senate and the leader of the Free Soil Party, used his role to push for anti-slavery causes in the state and advance the goal of freedom for the nation. We certainly covered a lot today. We discussed the forming of the Free Soil Democratic Coalition, the Compromise of 1850, and Sumner's election as the first Free Soiler in the Senate. This is one of those key moments in Wilson's career that he isn't remembered for in the way he should be. As I've touched on and will go into later, Sumner is remembered much more than Wilson is, though if it weren't for Wilson, Sumner certainly wouldn't have been elected. Just about all of the key players in this episode went on to have success in national politics, so look out for some of their names in future episodes. And a big thank you to Jeffrey Boutwell, who is currently working on a book about George Boutwell, the man elected as governor in the Democratic Free Soiler Coalition. Boutwell lived a fascinating life, which closely aligned with Wilson. You can check out Jeffrey Boutwell's work at jeffreyboutwell.com. J-E-F-F-R-E-Y-B-O-U-T-W-E-L-L.com. And look out for our conversation together which will be released as a bonus episode in the future. If you found today's episode interesting, I encourage you to subscribe or follow so you don't miss any new episodes. And if you're interested in seeing some images of Wilson's life and maybe doing some more reading on your own, check out henrywilsonhistory.com, my website dedicated to information on Wilson. If you have any questions or comments you'd like to share, 
please email them to henrywilsonpodcast at gmail.com and I'll do my best to respond in a future episode. Thank you so much for listening and I can't wait to speak to you more on the life of Henry Wilson. Thank you.